nine, eight, seven, six, five, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, Live two, Spain. one. This is the drive home with Harry Waters. Hello there, everybody. I'm si I can't seem to hear my own audio, which is quite distressing. So that's always fun. Let's check if I've got that there. How are we going? Um, Live from hello, Spain. hello. Can you hear me, this Hugh? Is the drive home Hugh can hear Harry me. Waters. Hugh's got a thumbs up. Can I hear you, Hugh? Uh, I'm not sure. Can you hear me I now or not? I can't hear you, Hugh. That's uh, no. Uh -huh. Let's see what's going on here. Let's see if it's my headphones. Otherwise, I'm going to join through my phone at the same time. You, you uh, should be able to hear me now. I'm not sure. Oh, can I can you hear, hear you loud and clear. Oh, so I exist. Good, 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 good. Okay. Here we go. Amazing. You do exist. We all exist. Live. Good, good. I sound very high pitched. This is the drive home <laughs> with Harry Walker. It's uh, the helium. Yeah, it sounds like it's helium. Tune in right, live what I'm going to do, I'm going to mute myself. Uh, oh, there we go. I suddenly sound better. Oh, I sound normal again. Well, that was a very interesting start to the show. Yeah, I can hear myself. Let's just check if it's this. It's, no, it's not that. I don't know why I can hear myself. Love these tech. And call in. Over here. I'm going to call in over here. Oh, look at all that. How about now? Can, Can you, you hear me, Hugh? Yes, but there's a slight echo. What, what is going, going on with my echo, echo today? today? This, this is very, very strange. strange. I'm, I'm going to leave and come back, back again. again. Okay. Just, Just a, a How about now? No, you can't hear me at all. Okay, brilliant. Well, this is great. Hello, no, and now there's an echo. echo. And now. Okay. Yes, we could be heard. I can hear you anyway. Excellent news. Oh, well, that's good. You can hear me. There's no echo. <laughs> that was probably the most stressful start I've ever had to a Teacher Talk radio show. Um, I blame, think I was blame me. Just blame me. I'm, I'm going to blame Hugh for that. Um, <laughs> I think I was overprepared. I've, I've had everything ready for about 40 minutes sitting here. We had a nice chat before before we came on, and uh, yes, yeah, suddenly out of the blue, it was uh, it was all feedbacky and not very friendly to me. So thank you very much for bearing with me, uh, Hugh. Thank you very much for bearing with me, everybody in the um, everybody listening. An absolute pleasure. That was a uh, Ooh, I'm certainly warm right now. I've got, I'm going to blame the sun that's beating down on me and not the absolute embarrassment of doing 40 shows and that sort of thing still happening. 
um, we can blame technology. Um, it's, it's been a fun week since I last spoke to you all, um, and, and this week continues to get even funnerer. Yes, I just invented a new word. It gets even funnerer. There are so many more things to come. Um, starting today with an, an incredible guest that we have, um, Hugh Della, someone I've been a big fan of for ooh, about a decade or so now, but, but maybe not quite as much of a fan as my mum is. But we'll get to that very soon. Um, we're going we're to shoot off for the news. Um, so stay where you are. We'll be back very, very shortly. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Wales, head teachers are optimistic that the new term beginning on Monday will be the most normal since 2019. School visits, leavers events, sports days, awards, fairs and shows are running for the first time since the pandemic began. New schools advice is due to be issued on Friday, May the 6th. 
Teaching unions, however, have warned that it is not business as usual and there is still a high risk of COVID disruption. Teaching union, UCAC, summed up mixed feelings, saying, Hopefully, with the weather improving, there will be more opportunities for schools to plan extracurricular activities. However, only time will tell if the infections will rise or not after the Easter break. Karen Brown, head teacher of Millbank Primary School in Cardiff, said, We are not so worried about COVID now, but there were still plenty of cases last term, so we are continuing with good ventilation and hygiene. We are looking forward to things like sports days again. Our plan is to invite parents to that and to our first year six leaver service for two years. We started trips last term and years five and six had an amazing time at Story Arms. We couldn't do that in the last two years. According to new research by the National Literacy Trust, parents spent less time reading, chatting and playing with their children during the pandemic. The Trust surveyed more than 1,500 parents with children under five. Overall, the report found that fewer parents of young children engaged in home learning activities, reading, chatting, playing, singing or painting and drawing in 2021 compared with 2019, despite spending more time in their home with their child due to the pandemic. Spokesperson Alison Tebbs said, It was such a difficult time for people. There was less support for families. There was less socialisation happening and beneficial activities like going to the park or library were often unable to take place. Reading with children and having conversations is vital for helping their brains develop. One of the reasons two-year-olds act out is because they're trying to communicate feelings which they can't explain verbally. That's why you get tantrums. The more words they have and the more support they get when they communicate, the more in touch they will be with their emotions and with the wider world. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this term is known to be one of the hardest. When we're distracted and tired, it's easy to make a mistake and fall for a scam. There are loads of scams out there, but the use of subdomains to give a fake sense of security is one scam that a lot of people fall for. In the interest of keeping you, your family and your friends safe over the next two episodes, I'm going to explain the fake bank message scam and how it can look so believable. First up, we need to discuss how data travels over the internet. If you explore an internet address, let's take Teachers Talk Radio as our example, https www.ttradio.org. There are basically four parts. HTTPS, this is Hypertext Transfer Protocol, with the S standing for secure. 
Protocols are used for data transfer. The HTTP protocol allows the transmission of HTML or hypertext markup language from a web server to your computer. In basic terms, it lets a web page be requested and viewed. The confusion here is the secure version. Some believe that seeing a site is HTTPS and has a little padlock in the address bar means that you are protected. To some extent, this is true. However, the security certificate for a site simply encrypts or scrambles the transmission. So if it's intercepted, it can't be used. So yes, you are secure from interception, but if the owner of a website is dishonest, you're not safe from them. The next three parts are to do with where the web page resides or the address. Like we need a postcode and house number, your computer needs to know where to look for the information you want. WWW is the World Wide Web, a huge network of interconnected networks. TT Radio is the name of the website and .org is the top level domain. Again, simplifying this, .org domains are kept in a kind of phone book that can be accessed by your internet service provider. So to find ttradio.org, .org tells you to look in the .org phone book for TT Radio and return where the website is for your browser to download it. Why don't you ask your pupils, family and friends what they believe the padlock and HTTPS means? You may be surprised at the answer you receive. Next time, we're going to look at how criminals use this misconception to gain your trust. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods. And that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Gail. We are back. Um, and we are here with um, an ELT superhero, uh, Hugh Della. Um, he is... I'm not going to describe too much about him because you've probably all heard of him already. You've probably used his books already by now. Um, the, the founder... Of, of Lexical Lab, um, the, the author of, of very many books, including Outcomes and, of course, uh, Roadmap, which, uh, which I, I almost uh, took him on a tea tour around Barcelona, but it was cancelled because, uh, because of some pandemic that happened. I'm not sure if you remember it. Um, but he is here. He is Hugh Della. Now, and before I do bring him in, I'm also going to say he is my mum's favourite ELT guy. Um, she often refers to the story of back in, I think it was 2012, at the T-Cell Spain in Bilbao. Hugh was speaking here, but he was also going to other presentations and such. And she ended up sitting next to him and, and he was her partner for something or another. And she was thoroughly impressed. And um, she even said she might be listening listening in tonight, which for my 40th show, I was quite impressed by that. So if you are listening, Mum, hello. Um, here he is. It's Hugh Della. Thank you very much, Harry. And um, hello to your mum, if you're out there listening. <laughs> um, I, I should just quickly add, I'm actually technically co-founder of Lexical Lab, along with Andrew My apologies. Bobby, my apologies. My writing yeah. partner. Um, yeah. Feel obliged to say that bit. Yeah. Thank yeah, you for yeah. having me. It is also true, and it is something that I, I was fully aware of. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I just completely ignored that fact. Um, my apologies, Andrew, because um, you know you've been you've been working together for a fair old while now, haven't you? Yeah, as my wife will, will, will put it, we've been married for longer than, than, than me and her have. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we've been working together sort of twenty twenty two years now, really. And how did you like? How did you meet? Because there's obviously like synergy there. There's obviously a great connection. Yeah. How did that come about? So, uh, I did my 
Delta in 1995, 1996. And when I was on the Delta, I actually met this Kiwi guy called Daryl Hocking. And we got on very well and we were both very interested in the lexical approach. And Daryl was actually my first writing partner. So the very first ever innovations that came out was myself and Daryl. And Daryl then ended up moving back to New Zealand. And around this time, sort of 97, 98, I got a job at University of Westminster. And about a year later, Andrew got a job at University of Westminster. And we lived quite near each other in North London. And we both played football with students and sometimes went to the pub after work, etc. And from that, we, we kind of started talking. And Andrew mentioned that he'd been doing little bits of writing. Uh, and I sort of suddenly thought, oh, wait a minute, I, I might need a new writing partner if my old writing partner's gone back to New Zealand. And out of that, our writing relationship really sort of emerged. And... Um, yeah, where we kind of basically, I guess, developed and, and grew up as teachers and trainers and writers together during our time at Westminster. And it, it has blossomed very much the the, uh, the writing relationship. I was, I was actually reading today on on LinkedIn about, you know, collaborations and such, and, and they are obviously more common now. It's a lot easier to, to have a writing partner because... You can be in New Zealand and you can be here, but you can you know, have a shared folder on Canva yeah. or OneDrive yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So it's much easier now. So you don't necessarily Much need... easier than it was back then, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that there are still certain kind of dynamics involved in just having that kind of relationship in terms of really just sort of rating the other person and trusting their judgment, you know? Um I think you need to be in a situation of kind of absolute trust with them where if they tell you that something's rubbish, it's probably rubbish and you need to take it seriously and that they know you well enough to be able to sometimes tell you that something might be rubbish, you know? Um, exactly. And that's and something that's different, that kind of level of, of like confidence in each other and in yourself to say that is, is something that isn't as easy to develop if you don't actually not. know somebody. No, it's you know, not. I think it, it's 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 earned and and learned over time. That there's a lot of pussyfooting around. If if it's not, you know, when you're yeah, when you're collaborating, with, you know, I, I collaborated just very recently with an, an incredible um, materials writer, Sylvina. You, you've probably seen her her stuff on on, on LinkedIn, but she was yeah. so polite in telling me the things that I'd done badly, and I was like, <laughs> it's okay. It is rubbish. You could tell me that it's rubbish because. She has an incredibly, wonderfully organized approach to, to the way she works and, and her materials are incredible. I have more of a kind of, you know, I'm, I'm an omelette kind of guy. You know, I'm smashing yeah. eggs everywhere and chucking bits in here and then, you know, I'll start over one part and then I'll finish it further down. And, you know, I, I make mistakes. I, I, I make plenty of mistakes. And, yeah, she she was incredibly polite with how she said, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I think this may be. And I was like, no, 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 just it's fine. It's rubbish. Is all good. Just tell me that it's rubbish, and you know, we, we yeah. work through that together in that way. But <laughs> it, it's hard to find that kind of in Spanish. We say confianza, like the, yeah, the yeah, trust yeah, within yeah. each other. So yeah, 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 yeah. It's lovely to to be able to have that, and and I hope to find more people. But yeah, I think twenty something years with somebody must be. Oh, I just must be brilliant. 
Yeah, and and I guess you, you you get to a stage where you don't really want to work with anyone else, and you know that's that's kind of been an issue a couple of times in relationships we've had with publishers where it's been suggested that we team up with other writers, and we've sort of both just put our foot down and said not really interested in doing that. Um, you know, happy to work in projects that other writers are involved in on other levels, but if we're going to write with someone, we'll be writing together. Thank you very much, um, or not at all. It's up to you. You know. Um, so yeah, I, I guess you go, you know, maybe that's a weakness as well. I don't know, but it's always felt like a strength to me. And I've always felt like I, I, I wouldn't have been able to do what I have done without having sort of, I don't know, Andrew to, to bounce ideas off and, and to, you know, develop and, and build on any sort of bits and pieces that I come up with. Exactly. Um, oh, uh, Vanessa said that she loves working with me. Um, it's lovely. <laughs> I love working with Vanessa as well. Um, in fact, we're going to be working together at a, a mindfulness summer camp um, in in Rome this summer, which is going to be amazing. Okay. Because we work together as, as trainers for Pearson and BBC Live classes, but we've never seen each other. Like This is one of those <laughs> things we've never seen each other. So hopefully she, she'll have the, the confidence to tell me that my work is rubbish. Um, I'm sure she will. <laughs> It's, you, you're just giving everyone a green light here, Harry, just to, to sort of stick the knife in. So, um, you know. I hope so. I hope they do. <laughs> I hope they do. Um, I've got a fairly thick skin, so it should be okay. Yeah, um, it's important. It really is. Now, you, you mentioned very briefly um, that you were interested in the lexical approach. Yeah. Now, can you tell our listeners who aren't aware of what the lexical approach is, what is the lexical approach? So I guess it's it's in a way it's quite a subjective question because I think like any kind of approach or I don't know buzzword or piece of terminology within English language teaching it's going to mean different things to different people and on on a kind of basic level I guess the lexical approach is a book that was written by Michael Lewis in 1993 um and I guess when people talk about the lexical approach, what they mean is approaches to writing, teaching, uh, training, materials development, and so on, which are influenced by the insights contained within that book and other, I guess, literature and thinkers who fall within that kind of tradition. I guess what it means to me is... First and foremost, it's an approach to language. It's a way of thinking about language that sees grammar and words as maybe much more interconnected than perhaps we've previously thought of them. Um, it's a way of thinking about language that sees language very much as frequently existing beyond the single word level. So it means recognising the importance of collocations, chunks, little blocks of language, fixed phrases, you know, kind of um, what, what Michael calls institutionalised sentences or, or socially sanctioned sentences, which are like just normal ways of saying things. Um, I mean, I had an example this morning I was teaching and one of the things I ended up teaching was, sorry, that came out wrong because one of my students said something and she didn't know that expression and she basically took the long-winded way of saying it, which was, oh, I'm sorry, um, I hadn't planned to express that idea in that particular way and after I said it, I, and it's like, yeah, yeah, it came out wrong. 
And, and you could see that kind of like, oh, is that how you say that? So simple. And it's just recognising that a lot of language and a lot of linguistic fluency relies on accumulating uh, a stock of that kind of stuff. And I guess it's then thinking about if you accept that and if you believe that to be true, what implications does that have for all manner of different classroom practices and classroom materials? So I guess what I took initially from the Michael Lewis book, The Lexical Approach, was this way of thinking about language which resonated with me and which massively impacted the way I then went on to think about my own teaching and my own writing. Uh, and it certainly kind of... has had an impact on it. Um, that, that goes it has, so, yeah. It um, has. I, I do like your, your, your one-minute English, which is, is rarely a minute, but is often it, it's very, <laughs> very good. Um, yeah. You have a wonderful See, array of hats in there, I must say. Um, uh, well, th th that all started because someone didn't realise that I was posting different videos every day um, before I started wearing hats. Um, and there was just like four or five little thumbnails of me probably wearing the same T-shirt um, looking at the camera. And they're like, oh, I didn't realise they were different videos, at which point I realised I needed some sort of um, differentiating gimmick, which is where the hats came in. But I do like a good hat as well. Oh, I've, I've got three or four hats. I'm a big fan of hats. It's getting a bit warm to be wearing this cap, but I think my main differentiator is probably my shirts, to be honest. Um, okay. Although I did have like quite a big error back on a project I was working on last summer when four videos in a row came out with me wearing the same <laughs> shirt. Although they had all been yeah. filmed. Like in one of them, I, I wasn't bald. And in one of them, I was bald. Like but I had the same shirt on like in these two different things. So The, gr the great unwashed. Well, that's it. I work online now. I, don't, I can save water. I can save electricity. Um, it, it's, it's unnecessary to, to waste all of that on... Uh, on you know but let's save the environment let's wash less um anyway um away from my personal hygiene issues because that's <laughs> not what we're here to discuss um yeah the lexical approach um and and chunks is, is is something you mentioned something vanessa mentioned in the chat as well um so like so vital in my opinion to to when we're learning and and when we're trying to express ideas i have another friend who he refers to something he calls the eagle method which is to hone in on a phrase and, and you attack it like you're an eagle and it's your prey. And I was like, so you mean the lexical <laughs> approach? And it's like, no, it's the eagle method. I was like, yeah, but, you know, you're, you're kind of looking for the language within the, the language. And yeah, um, and stepping away from this idea of, I don't know, 10 vocabulary words and yeah, the exactly. present simple. You know, exactly. so we're going to do daily routine and the present simple because that's what goes together and that's how we need to teach it and that's how it's been yeah. that's how it's been done forever that's how we've always yeah. done it that idea for me i can i can see how it works for some students because it is how it's always been done it's the way they're used to but it helps you pass your school exams but it won't particularly help you with your, I don't know, your yeah. Cambridge exam, your Trinity it exam. Won't, it your, won't get you through FCE. Exam. It won't get yeah. you through FCE. It won't get you through life. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> Which is a far more important consideration in the long term. Exactly. You know? <laughs> like the, the idea of being able to communicate, it, it's much more important that you can use these chunks. You can recognize these different, you know, familiar phrases. Um, and again, I think people fall into this, 
they then go to okay let's teach idioms and it's like some of yeah, it exactly some of it is idioms but when people fall into yeah. that they go straight to it's raining cats and dogs yeah exactly and i think that that's a common kind of knee-jerk reaction to to thinking about sort of teaching multi-word items most people's grasp of what multi-word items mean it is basically idioms and a lot of people's understanding of what idiomatic language is is shaped by you know the, the kind of stuff you find in course books um i don't know if you know that book uh, idioms organizer it's a lovely book by john wright and what's really nice about it is they basically have things like, you know, they'll take a unit on surprise and they have things like, I couldn't believe my eyes. Um, it was a real turn up for the books. It was a blessing in disguise. I got the shock of my life. If he thinks that blah, 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 he's got another thing coming. Um, and, you know, s some of that is obviously more stereotypically idiomatic than, than other bits. But just recognising that things like I couldn't believe my eyes are also kind of idiomatic and used in a fixed chunk-like kind of way, I think, is really, really important. And, I mean, that, that's one of the best books I've seen that, that covers that kind of language because it, it complicates your understanding of what we mean by idiomaticity, you know? Yeah, yeah. I used to have, like, in when I was, you know, when I just got to Spain, I was a big fan of idioms and I would have an idiom of the week as, you know, my starter in the class, you know, as you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a student go to his FCE exam um, and, and when, like, he came in Spain, they were obsessed with studying. And he said, I didn't know what to study last night, so I stayed up studying all of the idioms that we did. And I think I got most of them into the writing. And I was like, <laughs> no, no. Excellent. You know, you wrote, you yeah. had a whale of a time and, you know, it was raining. And I was just like, that's not. That's not what works. the idea of that was. It was basically the idea of idiom of the week was it was a warmer. It was something fun to do while people were arriving late. It was, you know, something that wasn't connected to the class per se. So if they wanted to use it, maybe they could. But yeah. It, and yeah, it obviously didn't. I, I did and, and a bad like, job think, in that. Ah, uh, You know, we've all been there. I, I think it's also just recognizing that certain kinds of, I don't know, fields of conversation or, or areas are maybe more likely to contain more of that language so of course you can yeah excuse me sorry that's my son interrupting me no worries um, there you go mister yeah um i think it's also just recognizing certain areas are maybe more likely to contain a larger degree of more predictable kinds of idioms. So if you've ever been sat in like a, an international business hotel somewhere and there are these scary people having like power breakfasts next to you and you've got like the Swede, the Greek, the Argentinian and the bloke from Morocco or whatever. And you often hear things like, yeah, well, we don't have a level playing field and, you know, um, Macmillan keep moving the goalposts and, that stuff is just very much part and parcel of high-level international business communication. Um, and so I, I think it's just, it's it's trying to really think about, you know, if you're going to teach that stuff, that's great. And it's also recognising that there's lots of other areas of language which are sort of multi-word, but not necessarily idiomatic in that kind of way. So, you know, it's just things like, it was great to get away from it all. 
I mean, it's a very common kind of multi-word unit that's not really an idiom or, you know, stop it, you're putting me to shame. Um, those kind of things are so much part and parcel, particularly of spoken fluency, I think. Um, yeah. But they're often very undertaught because they kind of fall into this grey area of they're not really words, they're not really phrasal verbs, they're not really idioms. What, what's, what, what section do we put them in? In the and, and I think the way that course books still present and process language is very much based around word frequency of individual items it's based around things like the cambridge evp the english vocab profile which is generally based around single words and mm -hmm. the kind of you know the, the the frequency and surrender value of single words so there are all kinds of issues that stop that stuff appearing as much as maybe it should in in course books and in classroom material so I guess I a lot of it then has to come from teachers and working from what students are saying, listening to them, understanding them and saying, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. You mean it came out wrong. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's that kind of thing a lot of the time. I think one of the, the things that you've really hit the nail on the head with, oh, there you go, it's using an oh, idiot. Um, look at that. Wow. <laughs> you, you, like, because they don't... Just can't help in... yourself. No, I can't. God, was, I just couldn't resist. Um, and I don't fall into any, like, specific category. And... Yeah. And what course books want are things in specific categories. I, I remember teaching proficiency like, and, and getting to the subjunctive section and just being like, what? I know. Subjunctive in English? What do you mean? The like, why are we classified? And, you know, there's stuff in there like, be that as it may. And I was like, but that's it's just a why phrase, we teach that as the subjunctive. That's just like a, a chunk of language that we use, which is very useful. It's, it's something yeah. that it's a really good thing to use, be that as it may. It's great. And, and there was truth be told as well and it's like why have they got a whole section on the subjunctive mm. like and i was like i don't understand the subjunctive me there trying <laughs> to teach this to, to i'm not sure i'm still not sure i understand it after like 30 years of teaching it's just like no and, and it felt like they were just shoehorning in as many different phrases yeah, yeah. as they could they were like what can we find there you go whereas what would make more sense would just be I don't know, some useful phrases. Let's just do a unit yeah. on some useful, if you have to do the subjunctive, to call it some useful phrases and and put some things in there. It doesn't always have to have the grammar behind it, you know. It's, it's not... a constant battle with publishers as well to to try to get them to think about things in a slightly different way. So often what they will want is not only like a lexical set, but within that lexical set, they will want all of the words you focus on, for example, to be verbs or all of the words you focus on to be adjectives. And a lot of the time, what, what, what you need to do, I mean, I've just finished writing this thing today for, for a print book about online problems. And the key words are sometimes verbs, sometimes adjectives, sometimes nouns. So you've got things like, you know, there's a lot of noise, your end. OK, I'm going to put you on silent. And the way the publishers will want you to think about that is silent is the key word because that's B1 level according to the EVP. And so a lot of the time it's just kind of working out ways of including the phrases or the sentences or the typical ways of expressing things that you want to say in the material, whilst also trying to give the publishers what they think they want or need by highlighting certain words within it and saying, these are the words that we're actually really teaching here. 
And I guess for some teachers, they think, okay, what I'm learning, what I'm teaching here is silent. Whereas I guess for me, what I think I'm doing is I'm just going to put you on silent. Yeah. Okay. And, and so it's trying to keep everyone happy within what the material's providing for them, um, which can be a pain in the neck sometimes, to be honest. But hey, you know. It, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, it's... It's usually the way I, I see these kind of phrases and chunks, the way they're dealt with in, in course books um, is often like a, a word spot or, you know, language box yeah. or yeah. You know, so they have like phrase of the, the unit. And it's just got, like, got a little box in the corner where it kind of has it highlighted there, which is yeah. a way of getting it in. Fair enough. It is, um, but it, it should be more, more omnipresent, I think, than that personally. I mean, it should be basically the way things are done all the time. You know, and a lot of the time, I mean, when you look at things like, I don't know, English file, which is sort of omnipresent, particularly if you're in Spain, say, still omnipresent. Basically, the way it deals with vocab is single words matched to meanings. And because of the success of the, those kinds of books, it creates a kind of expectation or, or uh, you know, like, like you were saying, a desire to to keep things as they have always been in the classroom and when you start to kind of challenge or question that, it, it you know, it, it unsettles some people, I guess. Yeah, one of the things I love about the, um, well, the advent of the internet, basically, is we're not so heavily reliant on course books anymore. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I love yeah, no, 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 books. I hear you. It's, but the fact is, like, now teachers can go out there and they can find other materials, you know, they can look at... There are other places where they can get their materials from, like evolving things where they can they, they can grab something new, something that's relevant to that moment. Because one of the biggest issues with course books is they become irrelevant too quickly. You know, the world is an ever changing place. Um, often the language yeah. is is relevant, but maybe the content isn't necessarily relevant. I remember teaching about David Beckham at Real Madrid long after he'd yeah. retired. Just like yeah, 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 yeah. I think any any kind of course book material that relies on celebrities or particular time bound news stories, etc., you're setting yourself up for a fall essentially um it's it's a dangerous approach to do and i mean just just anything that relies on celebrities full stop for me i look at that and i think those are writers who haven't taught loads of chinese students or loads of students from the muslim world because you teach students from those areas and they're like we don't care you know we're we're, we're not learning english because we have any interest in your celebrity culture um you know we're learning english to to kind of be able to be ourselves and to do what we need to do in the language. And I think that's a very kind of Western centric, Eurocentric way of thinking about the language and, and about culture. And I mean, just personally, I mean, in the nineties, when I first started teaching, I was using things like headway and headway had this very kind of Southern middle-class white kind of British tourist board view of England. And you know, I, I didn't feel like it represented my own experience of the country, mm -hmm. um, let, let alone, you know, other people's experience of being part of the English speaking world in its wider sense. And so I, I, I think, yeah, you've got to be very careful with all of those things. And, and, you know, but that's partly what drove me as a writer. And I guess what drove Andrew as a writer was a sort of desire to 
represent a wider view of the culture and the language and the way things work. And so I totally get if, if teachers out there, you know, kind of move away from course books and want to find other material that they feel represents a, a kind of, you know, a reality which is maybe more meaningful for their own students, because that's kind of what's driven me as a writer to get to where I'm at. Well, exactly. You and, and you do still you do still teach as well, which, um, yeah, yeah. as you mentioned yeah, before, yeah. which I think yeah. is, is really important yeah. for writers. To every bleeding to day. Every, you teach every day? Uh, five days a week, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's... Um, still, even hats, when I'm writing. Hats off to you. I'm, you yeah. know, I've, I've literally just taken my hat off. Well, I tipped my cap, actually. I didn't take it off. I'll um, take that. That's, uh, that's impressive. I, I have now four permanent classes. Um, okay. And then some rotating classes that kind of come. I have eight. So I have my four classes a week, but then I also have my eight classes a month. Um, okay. So, yeah, not every day. But I think it's so important that as, as writers, as, as trainers, you know, we continue to teach. You know, it's yeah. something it's something if we leave that behind completely then surely we will soon become irrelevant as well if we aren't yeah. in touch with our with our students yeah. now and and you can see it you can see it in in i don't know certain speakers on the ELT circuit who clearly haven't been in a classroom for quite some time other than perhaps as a sort of um you know fated guest of some kind who sits in the corner um and I think when you get to that stage, you kind of lose the right to really talk about the profession in a way, you know? I mean, I hope when I'm at that stage, people will just take me out the back and um, do the kind thing, you know, like... You're, you're done. You're not relevant <laughs> well, well, anymore. <laughs> you know, to take you to the knacker's yard and be done with it, basically. It's, um, you'd hope you'd have friends who would point that out to you. Um yeah, well, yeah, I completely see what you mean. Now, I was I was actually speaking to a friend. I do have a couple. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, it says here, yeah, you, people who can't, uh, Vanessa said, people who can't use Zoom show that they haven't taught for a while. Um, uh, indeed, yeah. <laughs> one of the big signs. Um, now, I've, I have a friend. Um, that, that's not an announcement. That's, it's just a fact. Um, and, and he is a big fan of the lexical approach, and he teaches in a private school here uh, where they have two hours of English a day and the students are brilliant and the students do really, really well. Um, but his question was, would the lexical approach work as well if students weren't as immersed in the language? So if they were coming in and having maybe an hour or two hours a week, would it work as well? Yeah, because I mean, in a way, as with anything in teaching, it's about asking what your alternatives are. Okay. And the way I would look at that is if you say, say you're doing two hours a week, okay, and I don't know, whatever level those students are, in those two hours a week, you're basically looking to help them get better at a particular kind of conversation or help them talk and listen and read more about a particular kind of topic, okay? If that's what you want to achieve and that's what you're setting out as your goal for the week. So your goal might be something like, you know, by the end of this week, my students are going to be better able to talk about online learning and problems they might encounter when studying online. Well, if you're just teaching, I don't know, um, imperatives and 10 single words, 
Well, how does that help them have those conversations? What do they do with that? So at the end of the lesson, they can kind of go switch, press, um, um, restart. Silent. Um, you know, basically a silent, silence, <laughs> you know, stop, start. Uh, it doesn't take you very far. And, and if you want to think about how those things operate in conversation, you basically have to think about how words interact with other words and how words interact with grammar, which is, in essence, a kind of lexical way of thinking about language. And it doesn't mean that I expect everybody will be able to reproduce all of that stuff immediately after encountering it in the classroom. But it does increase the likelihood of them being able to. And it does represent the language as the language is realistically used. And it does mean that the classroom experience of the language is more likely to mirror any experience of the language that they may have outside of the classroom, you know, thanks to the glories of the Internet and so on. Um, and you still cover imperatives and, you know, words like switch or press or whatever or click, but you do so in a more meaningful kind of, I don't know, holistic kind of global way. Um that, that allows you to cover that stuff plus. Um, and I think then it's just what your expectations about what the plus will lead to are, really. Um, and I guess my expectation is whatever happens in those classes, you'll get at least what you would have got just doing a grammar point and some single words, at least. I think what I really and, like... And it kind from... of... It... So, sorry, go on, Harry. I was, no, I was going to say, I think what I really like from, from what you said there, now, when people talk about the lexical approach, other people think, ah, so you don't teach grammar. It's like, well, it's, what I loved is how, the, how it reacts with grammar. You know, not just it's grammar, it's, it's, it's vocabulary and grammar. It's, it's the way they react together. And that's yeah. like, I really like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, in a way, I guess, it's also just thinking about how kind of omnipresent grammar is. Um, I'm doing this talk at IATEFL in Belfast next month um, called what, What's Grammar Really For? Rethinking Our Priorities. And it's basically, you know, the kind of nutshell summary is the, the, the main reason we should really be teaching grammar is to help our students use the words they're learning and to help them say what they want to say. And when you start looking at language and thinking about language in those terms, what you realize a lot of the time is we don't use a huge amount of grammar that often in everyday speech. So a lot of what you do is basically present simple, past simple, present perfect simple, going to will, you know, stuff that you've basically covered by the end of an elementary course. The issue then is knowing how to use it in certain contexts with certain bits of vocabulary. So, you know, you, you can study, um, I don't know, will as much as you want but in order to say something like well we'll all need to tighten our belts a bit over the next few months you, you need to learn tighten your belt um and and you need to learn over the next few months and the will part is basically the least problematic part of that sentence um that's the really really easy bit so it's basically just kind of looking at yeah, students need to see and encounter grammar repeatedly in meaningful contexts over time. But actually, the grammar they'll need isn't really that complicated. Um, and a lot of the things that I think some students think make them advanced, like dramatic inversion, um, 
generally just make them sound daft. You know, you, you get those students who say things like, you know, never before have I read so interesting a book. You know, why why are you talking like that? Because I'm advanced. So, yeah, it doesn't make you sound advanced. Exam. It, it just makes you sound like you don't understand how that particular bit of grammar works. Um, and I think, you know, students are kind of disappointed when they realise that actually in spoken English, what people really say is, no, no, it's a really interesting book. I really enjoyed it. And they're like, what's so simple? It's like, yeah. So the problem you've got is you don't know how to be simple because you're too busy showing off with your dramatic inversion. Um, Which would do and, you well in an exam because you'll get bonus points in an exam for it. But um, as an, when I was an examiner... Exactly. When Possibly. I was an examiner myself, I was much more focused on people's... Ha how fluently being... they can express exactly. themselves. Yeah. Exactly. It was, it was and almost about, kind of... A conversation. And what, they, what they're saying a lot of the time as well, you know? Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, that thing you were saying earlier about getting through life. Um, a lot of the best conversations I've ever had with people have been with students who aren't particularly grammatically competent, um, but they're very keen to tell you something and to communicate their ideas and those people will be fine in life basically because they're they're, they're communicators and they're, they're they're engaging and they've got something they wanted to say and something they wanted to talk about and i think ultimately that goes a lot further than sitting there stressing worrying about whether or not you should use the present perfect simple or the present perfect continuous um if I ever you know, see another will versus going to in my oh, life, I, oh, I, oh. I've never understood this, this versus, you know, present simple versus present continuous. Why is oh, no. there a competition there? <laughs> why, why, who, oh, no. who, you know, this is an Arsenal Man United. Yeah. This is yeah. Cobra versus Mongoose. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So why, why are we, why are Will and going to fighting? You know, they're, they're virtually interchangeable. They are interchangeable. A lot of the time. Very few occasions when maybe it doesn't work, but there uh, are not a strict set of rules. Particularly when you're doing things like predictions. You know, it'll rain yeah. later, it's going to rain later. It's going to yeah. be nice this weekend, it'll be nice this weekend. They're going to win, they'll win, they're never going to win, they won't win. All of those kind of contexts, absolutely pointless wasting time thinking about them. Well, exactly. Oh, but is this a prediction based on evidence? Can you see the clouds right now? So is it going to doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so many course books have like wasted so much time on it. And again, that won't help you pass any yeah. exam, and it won't yeah. help you in real life. Like, yeah. They're, they're, no, I know. And, and I think as, a as as teachers, it's just recognizing. Yeah, you know, it's. I don't know if you ever saw that book we wrote. We did this little book called um, "Grammar Nonsense and What to Do About It." I have which seen is it. About it's about exactly this kind of thing, and it's basically things that we learned the hard way as, as teachers and writers and just kind of thought, well, why are we spending precious time doing this insane nonsense? <laughs> Let's, there must be a better way of thinking about this. And, and I guess the thing you said about grammar, I mean, for me, I think I teach grammar much better than I used to when I was teaching grammar in a more traditional way and in the way that I've been trained to teach it. Um, because I think actually what I was doing in a lot of those lessons is misrepresenting the way that language works and the way that language is used. And, you know, when you do a whole lesson where you're only looking at, say, the second conditional, um, you, you're, you're storing up problems for students because 
one you end up creating weird contexts so you you spend an hour going around the room saying, what would you do if you won a million dollars? I would buy a house. Good. Where would your house be? My house would be on top of a mountain. Good. What kind of car would you buy if you bought a car? You, you know, it's kind of nonsense like this. And, and that's all set up to kind of force the structure into students' heads. But then outside of the classroom, they're never going to have a conversation where they're only asked and answering things in the second conditional. What they're much more likely to, to need to do is say, say something like, you know, hey, are you coming to the party tomorrow? No, I'd love to, but I can't. I've got to work. Oh, I would if I wasn't working, but sorry, not this time, maybe next time. And you, you can't learn that if you're only doing a lesson which is focused on the second conditional. What What you need to do is to kind of maybe do a little bit where you look at making excuses and within that you might include a couple of second conditionals um and so it's just kind of thinking about grammar much more in terms of what is it we use the language to do and how does the second conditional interact with other things how does the present continuous interact with other things you know how, how do things interact with each other in normal everyday use and that kind of traditional PPP-based way of thinking about grammar and presenting language and getting students to practice language doesn't take any of that into consideration. So I, I would argue that I'm kind of teaching grammar better than I used to because I'm thinking much more about how language is really used these days. And also in, in your situation, I imagine your, your learners aren't it's not a monolingual class, is it? When you're, when no, you're teaching, very, you very rarely these days. Yeah, so it, it's, very rarely. You know, like with with a lot of my classes, I can relate whatever grammar we're speaking about to Spanish. Yeah, okay. There's a Spanish, so I can yeah I can use grammar in that way and say, well, you know, if we're doing a comparative, I can say it's more or less the same in Spanish, and they have that yeah. connection. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is great, you, you know. I think it's a, it's a power a you've got. Tool. Exactly. How long how long have you been in Spain, Harry? I have been here now for almost twelve years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A good um, chunk. And so yeah. you've got that kind of talent that a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are kind of L2 speakers of English and they're teaching English and they're often teaching students who share the same first language as them have that kind of innate sort of superpower, I think of it as, to be able to relate L1 to L2 in a constructive and fruitful way and to maybe guide students thinking about how the two languages relate and, and interact. And exactly. you know, I guess you've come at that the other route by being an L1 speaker of English who's learned Spanish as an L2 and, and then can acquire some of that kind of, you know, superpower and can use that yourself. So more power to you. Absolutely that. And, and, and speaking of power, I'm going to shift away from the lexical approach and swerve okay into um, power. Um, okay. I mentioned the power in the union earlier. And, and what you've just said there is really, um, it's, it's something that struck a chord with me many years ago um, when, I was, when I was applying for jobs. And, and it had this whole, you know, only native speakers were allowed to apply for it. For a start, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of that, that phrase anyway, because everybody yeah. is a native speaker. Um, yeah, just, yeah, 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 know, yeah. Of whatever language yeah. they have, you know, um, yeah, as Ooh, you'll have noticed, teachers. I'm trying to shift to L1 speaker and L2 speaker of English. and um, Exactly. You know, exactly. but even that's a sort of, you know, it's an inadequate tool. Well, exactly. We, maybe... we're, all, we're all English teachers and you're, you're fairly yeah. outspoken yeah. in this, um, 
in this this quest for equality, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of Let's teachers, call it be, that. because it really is, you know, I, I, as you mentioned there, from from acquiring um, Spanish, from learning Spanish, it does feel like a bit of a superpower, and I look yeah. on with awe at other other teachers, other Spanish teachers teaching English, and I'm just I'm fascinated by by their approach and. You know, I'm not saying they're all better teachers than, you know, your typical backpacker sure. who's been... Sure, talking. sure, sure, sure. But they have that empathy that yeah, a lot of teachers don't have. You know, a lot yeah. of English teachers don't have any second language. So they don't have yeah. the empathy of learning the language and they don't have that connection with the language. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I guess my own interest in all of this was quite slow to develop because I think when I first started teaching, um, I, I didn't really meet many, you know, L2 speaker teachers of English for a long time. So, well, maybe on my CELTA course, there was one or two people, but I didn't really process them. It was like, yes, but they're going to go back and work in Poland or something, you know, that they're from a different kind of universe to, to someone like me who's doing this to travel and see the world. Um, and then my first overseas job, I was working in Indonesia and I was working in a context where my boss only employed native speakers. Um, some of them literally just off the street backpackers who had no teaching qualifications whatsoever and no real interest in teaching. And the school sold itself as providing native speaker teachers to upper middle class Indonesians who wanted to be in a room with a native speaker. And I, I didn't really think about it. And it wasn't until I think I started writing and then traveling and meeting teachers, particularly in places like Russia, Poland, Ukraine, Czech Republic, you know, Spain, um, Brazil, when you start meeting the local teachers who come from, you know, having learned English themselves as a second language and becoming teachers, and you realize kind of just, A, how, how incredibly fluent they are, uh, and B, kind of how dedicated they are, and how aware of what's going on in the field they are, all of those kind of things. And then watching some of them teach and talking to them and watching them present at conferences. And, and then you kind of realize... There are still all these people out there advertising native speakers only. Often that means very particular kinds of native speakers. You know, there's Absolutely. a kind of racialized, there's a racialized element to all of that. There, there's a kind of class-based element to all of that. And I think also kind of coming from a, I don't know, you know, a non-public school background. I don't know if you can tell. Um <laughs> But coming from a kind of just a state school background, like a, a you know normal kind of lower middle class, upper working class kind of background myself, I was very aware when I first got into publishing and then got onto the conference circuit, how, how even in the UK, still how kind of dominated that all is by people who've been to public schools and kind of elite educational institutions. And the, the sort of snobbery and prejudices that still exist around varieties of English around accent around diction and you know rhetoric and all that kind of stuff um and and kicking against that really and just just you know I mean Andrew's from Birmingham um so you know he's got his own cross to bear on that front um uh, and and neither of us fit into that kind of you know sort of um upper middle class southern public school sort of background 
and I guess that gives you a kind of empathy with outsiders and with people who don't fit into that either. And, and then just basically just a sense of, of fairness and, and, and justice and, and kind of thinking, well, this is bullshit. Like, well, why, well, well, why would someone off a CELTA course be offered three times the price that a really good qualified teacher from Poland who's been teaching 10 years and is basically bilingual get? It doesn't make any sense. And then I think on top of all of that, especially in the last sort of eight, nine years, there's been a kind of Brexity, Trumpy kind of arrogance that some native speaker teachers come to the job with. And I see it when I'm arguing with people online where people get very touchy. People get mm -hmm. very like, well, you know, we all have freedom of choice. We're free to choose who we want. And it's like, well, legally, you're not free to choose who you want, actually. You know, legally, there are requirements on people advertising for, for teachers that need to be respected because otherwise everyone would be free to say, well, I don't want a black teacher. I don't want a woman. I don't want a Muslim teacher. I don't want a gay teacher. And, you know, that's not the way the law actually works. And so it's not about freedom of choice. There's also, I think, a lot of myths around what native speakers can do or bring to the classroom. And people are very touchy about, you know, well, I can teach the accent. It's like, what, so oh. your students sound like so your students sound like you, do they? Because oh. I've been teaching 30 years and I've never had a student who sounded anything like me. OK, I just haven't. Um, I've Unless had students you pick who... them up at two years old and uh, teach yeah, them until they're seven. <laughs> like, there's a slim chance then they Bring them up as your accent. child. Yeah, yeah maybe. Exactly. maybe. And, and then there's all this kind of myths about, you know, I can teach them the culture. It's like, what culture is that? What is the culture? Well, American culture, British culture. Which part of, which part of British culture do you teach them? Well, I can answer their questions about the culture. Well, what you can do is you can express your own cultural reality, okay? But that's not my cultural reality, and that's not going to be your cultural reality. And we've all we've all got our own cultural realities. There is not one thing that we all possess and share and agree on that students need to have transmitted to them as part of their language teaching. And so I, I just think that there's a lot of there's a lot of I don't know defensive bigotry still connected to people protecting their positions of power as native speakers and in the end I would like to be judged as a teacher not on the fact that I've got a, a passport that says I was born in England I would like to be judged as a teacher on my teaching and on my ability to help students learn the language and on my empathy and my pedagogical competence and I would like other teachers to be also judged on those things, not on where they were born. And uh, I think I have first heard it from Marek Kichkoviak, who, who does the TEFL equity advocates thing. Mm -hmm. um, he had this lovely expression about good teachers are made, not born. And, you know, it just it needs saying and it needs repeating. And you'd kind of imagine we're at a stage where we're past all of this, but we're clearly not. And I know Silvana Richardson did her amazing IATEFL plenary a few years ago. And I, I think the tide is slowly turning. Um, but I think it needs, you know, as with anything, it's like in order to stop sexism, you need men to call out other men. In order to stop racism, you need white people to call out other white people. And in order to kind of stop native speakerism, you need native speakers, so-called. Um to, to, to call out native speakerism and to kind of challenge it, I think. Um, 
and so yeah you know i've probably spent way too many hours of my life in in arguments with very touchy sensitive people who feel like i'm kind of taking away their privilege um You're taking their sovereignty like yeah basically <laughs> you know it's it's it, well it's it, it's you know it's it's those angry straight white middle-aged men kind of going you can't even call yourself english anymore or you get arrested it, yeah. it's that you know be illegal to be a man soon um yeah it, it's it's in a way it, it's the kind of elt version of that and i think it's also then just sorry to rant on about this it, no, it's no, recognizing it's recognizing your own language learning experiences and i know when i was learning indonesian um I learned a lot of my Indonesian from other Western people who spoke Indonesian as a second language better than me, okay? And we used English to get to the Indonesian. So I would ask them in English, like, how do you say, you know, can you stop here, please? And they'd tell me, and I'd learn that phrase. Or I'd hear them say something, and I was like, oh, what was that you just said? And, and we used English all the time to kind of decode or encode the Indonesian that I needed. And then later on, even with Indonesian friends, the people I communicated best with or, or most often with, we often spoke both languages and sometimes we'd switch in and out of the language or sometimes I'd get stuck and I would say, I don't know how to say this bit in Indonesian, so I'm just going to say it in English. And they'd go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You mean blah, blah, blah. And it was like, ah, that's what I'm looking for. And that was all basically done through having access to bilingualism within the classroom okay or bilingualism within the learning process and so when i hear people kind of say well you know if i was learning chinese i would want a native speaker it's that it's, it's just a it's a stupid way of looking at it what you'd want is someone who spoke chinese better than you and probably someone who also spoke your first language because and someone that straight, they teach uh, <laughs> always an added bonus um <laughs> You know, uh, and and so I, I just think it's 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 good to to challenge all of those myths and to ah you know maybe sometimes I'm a bit harsh in it. So I see people on kind of you know English teachers in Valencia kind of going, "Hi, I'm a native speaker looking for a job," and then I chip in, kind of saying, "Being a native speaker isn't a qualification." And people get really sensitive about it. It's like you know, why are you so horrible to people? It's not well, horrible. I I'm just. I'm just pointing out that it's not a qualification. That's all. Exactly. I like to, you know, when I see the, these adverts and such and these things, I just like to, to ask people if they are advertising for jobs, is there any way you could advertise your job without saying native speaker? Because guess what? You don't need one. Also, it's illegal. And yeah, exactly. Like, oh, often people kind of just do it out of habit and they realize, yeah, and they're yeah, like, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to. And, you know, yeah. But yeah, there are those, those people who, who, yeah, don't um, don't react particularly well to it now. And and as you mentioned, I've I've found and I've discovered, you know, through learning another language, I did learn a lot from people who weren't native speakers of Spanish. I learned a lot from people who were had learned Spanish um, and they'd originally um, been English speakers. And and like further to that, I with my my experience teaching these um, BBC Live classes, I have met so many teachers from across the world so many teachers and I've been able to you know have this kind of window into their life through Facebook or, or through Instagram or whatever to see what they're doing to see what they're teaching and how they're connecting with people and it's just it's absolutely incredible now 
I'm going to take a quick moment to, to shoot off for the ads. Um, we'll be back in a couple of minutes and we'll continue talking about this then. So thank you so much. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. We are back. Um, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for, for be, hanging around with us there. Um, a, a pleasure to have you. Um, and a pleasure to have Hugh as well. Uh, something that was mentioned just at the end there of the ads, um, salaries and benefits. Salary yeah. and benefits, something um, ELT teachers <laughs> often discuss in various uh, platforms here, there and everywhere. Now, you know, the best salaries tend to come uh, and salaries and benefits tend to come from areas where they often advertise for only native teachers. Um, we're talking in, in uh, lots of parts of Asia and um so yeah, how can we, as ELT teachers and professionals, what can we do to ensure we get the best salaries and benefits, Hugh? Join a union. Join a union. There you go. Um, For first, first answer. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, I think. And I, I think 
for a long time a lot of well a lot of teachers are kind of you know it, it's it's squid game or or it's it's parasite or it's any of those other kind of korean dramas about the way in which we're all basically encouraged to fight and kill each other in the scramble to get to the top of the pile um mm-hmm. and be rewarded for for for, for that kind of um you know, activity. I think, realistically, I, ELTs are very funny industry because a lot of the big schools and big chains, particularly in the UK, but also around the globe, are owned by very, very, very wealthy people. And, you know, a, a lot of the chains in the UK, like EF and so on, are, are basically owned by billionaires and they're owned by hedge funds. And, those people don't become rich simply through their own hard work and genius. They become rich through the impoverishment and the immiseration of others a lot of the time. And you can try one of two things. I guess it's, you know, what are your alternatives? Like I was saying earlier with the classroom, um, it's basically you can go and ask for a raise. Well, good luck with that. You can look for another job in another place, which might offer you a bit more money. That can sometimes be a possible thing to do. Or you can kind of organize collectively, particularly kind of beyond your own institution. And I, I know in Spain this is starting to happen. And here in the UK with the TEFL Workers Union, it's kind of starting to take off as well, where people are sort of recognizing that if you're only organizing within your own institution, you're obviously putting yourself at risk. Um, Years ago, I used to work at um, a language school in London, which I won't name in case they're they're listening and um, are sensitive about people knowing these things. But um, it began with saint in the name. Uh, And they were... that they were infamous because a whole bunch of teachers before I was there had got together and basically said to the boss, we demand a pay rise. And the boss had just got rid of them all and hired a whole load of new people who didn't know that they were being basically brought in as scabs. Um, And the problem with organizing within your institution is you don't have wider collective power. Whereas if you're part of a, a kind of profession wide union, which for EFL people hasn't really existed up until very recently, um once you're part of a, a broader union and you've got a kind of collective bargaining power beyond your own institution it helps you fight the kind of many injustices to which you will be subjected working particularly in the private language sector within within EFL um it's still not a kind of cural solve all problem um i think beyond that there's also just stuff like agitating for a better national living wage for everybody. You know, I mean, here in the UK, there's kind of, you know, there's what's on offer from the government. There's Keir Starmer's kind of lukewarm, we'll offer 50 pence more than that. And then there's the demands of a lot of people within the labour movement for a £15 an hour living wage. And it's also being involved in campaigns like that and recognising that, you know, a lot of people in private language schools here are still earning like 12, 13 quid an hour, which is, you know, a couple of quid above a national minimum wage. Um, And it's, you know, it's not enough. It's not enough for, for, for people to make a career out of it. It's not enough for people to kind of put down roots, start families, do do things normal. People Buy might a want house. to do at some point. In, 
you know, <laughs> just radical things like that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's funny. You know. Like when I was um, I was teaching in a school uh, previously, and it was it was an improvement on the language academy I'd been working in because the language academy was a nine month contract that would you know, it, it ended in June, and then until September it was basically yeah, good luck. Uh, go, yeah. if you can find work then great if you can't then unlucky and you know having a daughter I wasn't able to do what a lot of people do is go back to the UK and teach in a summer camp over there and then um, so I went into a school and it was great for me because I had this I had a contract for a full year now bear in mind I'd been teaching for almost a decade before I got my first full contract of a full yeah, year contract. Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. 10 yeah. years teaching under my belt until I, I'd got that. Um, and then suddenly I realized that I was I was there and I was working from sort of about half past eight in the morning till five in the evening. And I was earning about 10 euros, 15 an hour in the end. And I was and I was ruined at the end of every day because I was yeah. I was teaching up to seven hours in a day. And I was like, I'm earning more than I did before and I have a better contract, but I'm absolutely exhausted and there's nothing yeah. I can do about it because... And it's just unsustainable as well, you know. It's like, um, I don't know about you, but I'm not getting any younger. Uh, and it's like, y- you can do that kind of thing when you're in your 20s and maybe in your early 30s. But then once you've got kids and, you know, you're just getting on a bit... It's much, much harder to maintain that kind of, I don't know, degree of intensity in your working life. And at the same time, I mean, it's stupid on the part of schools as well, because if what you're doing is driving out people who have a lot of experience and expertise in the field simply because they're so knackered that they can't continue to do what they're doing for the wages you're paying them, it's it's a kind of it's a stupid way of of managing a workforce basically um and it's a very short term short-sighted way of managing a work sort of space i guess the other alternative that i know is starting to happen is people are setting up little kind of collectives and 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 kind of co-ops and that kind of thing um as language schools and that's also a good idea i think but I basically don't think there's any real way of seeing meaningful systemic change without some kind of collective struggle and and collective organising. You know, otherwise it just becomes a kind of dog-eat-dog who can get the top job in the top academy. Well, that's great if you get it. What about everyone else who's also a great teacher? But then Um, in the summer, it doesn't even become who can get the top job. It's who can get the job. Yeah, one exactly, job available yeah. in the whole city to be able to Squid, to earn Squid money. Game. You know, it's, it, it so is. It's just, and you know, I, I guess also, yes, of course, everyone probably needs a side hustle. Everyone probably needs to think about other ways in which you might be able to bring in some extra money during the lean months. But I think if you are in a position where you can join a union and you can organise, you should do so. And if you're in a position where you've done well out of the profession, someone like me, um, you, you kind of have a moral obligation to be involved and give some time and energy over to things like, you know, unions and organising and supporting people who are, who are having problems. So one of the things I'm involved in is I, I do stuff for the TEFL Workers Union. 
And so I've helped to design a whole load of free material for them, which is on their website, which anyone can look at. Um, it's the TEFL Workers Union site. And there's a section called Labour English, which is kind of business English lessons written from a worker's point of view. Um, and particularly the kind of workers that you often teach if you're working in ELT in the UK or in Ireland or whatever, where you're dealing with people who are on zero hours contracts, who are being dicked around at work, who might be subject to harassment, who don't know about unions, don't know about their legal rights. And it's kind of thinking about the world of work and the world of labour from their point of view and writing lessons that are maybe more friendly for them rather than the, you know, you're going to negotiate a million pound that's, deal with Microsoft. With, with um, business <laughs> English, there is so little working. And it's like, uh, yeah, exactly. And for a lot of people, it's like, I'm not going to negotiate a million pound deal with Microsoft. I'm going to do another 12 hour shift in the bloody burger joint. You know, even though in my country, I'm an architect. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, that's the reality for lots of people. And so I think having material that reflects that is good. And being able to do something like that myself as, as a writer and, and being able to just contribute that and also kind of, you know, take part in social media campaigns and you kind of naming and shaming schools and all that kind of thing. Anything you can do, it take you five, ten minutes out of your day every now and then to be involved in that stuff. And collectively, it just helps to empower us as a profession, you know. Absolutely. And I've, I have to say, I've learned a lot from um well particularly the social media presence of the of the of the union because there are things yeah. that i didn't know about and i've seen it yeah i know i'm gonna go double check that just to make sure because obviously you know you still have to you know you have to fact check everything yeah. you know as you know somebody who's involved in the kind of sustainability world i'm, I'm used to fact checking uh, yeah. a lot of stuff and like you go in and you just look at it and it's like Oh my God! I can't believe that has just happened. Like particularly in terms of sustainability, a lot of the things I've read that have been posted recently have just—they've taken my breath away. Um, and it's just yeah. like, oh my, there is such a high level of greenwashing going on there. And, and and maybe some of it isn't even greenwashing. Like there are some parts of it where there are materials being created that are going out to to people in across the world. And it's, it's with the best intentions, but then obviously other branches of these um, these Goliaths within the within the industry are off partnering with the Tory government or they're off partnering yeah. with, um, you know, British Petroleum. And you're just thinking, yeah. I, I feel really bad for those people who are within those institutions that are trying to make this change, that are pushing these ideas forward to, to make, a, you know, get these sustainability things out there. While their boss is, you know, behind their back, you know, making deals with Shell or whatever, and he's like, yeah, uh, and yeah, it's it's been incredibly eye-opening for me. Um, so here we go. Uh, Vanessa's saying, would be great to name and shame bad, irresponsible teachers too. Yeah, for example, those who don't turn up to work, um, giving us all a bad name, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. Um... Yeah, it's not my job to do that. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and I may on occasion have possibly missed the odd day of work in my 20s because of my own recreational pursuits as a... I don't a, a young, believe it for a second. A young, enthusiastic nightclubber, etc. Um, 
you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely innocent on that front myself. And so he, he who is without sin can cast the first stone, etc. Um, I've got a stone here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it will are not you be without cast. sin? I are you without got, sin, Harry? I've got so much sin, Hugh. I've got so much sin. <laughs> <laughs> I've got bags of it. Um, but I, no, I see what Vanessa, what Vanessa means it. here. Now, Vanessa is a, a language school owner in, in Rome. Um, uh, an, an incredible language school. And she is a, a wonderful boss. I've spoken to a lot of her employees, actually. Um, and, you know, they're all treated very well. And there are places out there that do treat their, their staff very well and pay them fairly and provide them yeah, with work. Yeah, there are. There are. And, you know, I guess rather than name and shame staff, I think maybe what's good to do is to, to, to do what you've just done, which is to kind of give some props to people who do things properly. Um, I mean, you know, as, as a very small online language school ourselves with Lexical Lab, we have two employees and we made a very conscious decision to pay them kind of well above the going rate and well above what they're earning anywhere else. And we pay for them to go to conferences if they want to and training courses and that kind of thing. And, you know, you, you do that with the, the staff that you've got that you value because you want to keep them and you want them to get better. And an investment in those staff members is also an investment in your own kind of um, future in that sense, you know. So, yeah, you know, I think it's important to kind of give some props to those people and to yeah, those schools. Um, and um, well done, Vanessa, moment. for what you're doing. Oh, she's brilliant. She's doing a mindfulness course at the moment, actually. So that's... Uh... And I'm joining in with that, which has been, it's been really Ah, this is the me. one you were on about, yeah? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. It is indeed, it is indeed. It's been really good for me because, you know, going from kind of teaching and then I was an ELT consultant for, for Pearson into being freelance, I've, I've found myself incredibly stressed quite often just because I've taken on too much or whatever. I've gone too far. So, you know, being able to connect with, with Vanessa and being able to kind of just calm myself down a bit every now and again has been... Been yeah, very useful. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And yeah, like yeah. you say, um, shout. It, it's it's so important to shout about those who do it wrong, um, and those yes. who and name and shame those who do it wrong. But it's equally important to highlight those who do it right uh, and make it. I don't. I don't know what the opposite of naming and shaming is. Is it just giving props to, giving <sighs> some giving, naming, giving a shout out to a shout out? Yeah, celebrating. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's good to to know that there are there are still good people out there doing good yeah. things. Um, yeah, no, there are, there are, there there, there are quite a few. Um, but there are also a lot of incredibly horrible, exploitative people out there, and it is important that that they are that they they are named and shamed, and and we know about these people and, and we hear about them because nobody wants and, to be in that situation. And and I guess as Vanessa was hinting at, there are also people who are probably not cut out for a lifetime in, in teaching and who maybe don't take their responsibilities to their employers and their students as seriously as perhaps they should. And, you know, at some point we'll need to either redress that particular kind of behaviour or move on to some other area of life. Exactly. Now, um, I'm going to stick my neck out here and say on many occasions... These will be L1 speakers of English. Um, almost almost certainly. And they've gone up and they've thought, I'm going to travel the world yeah. and the only way yeah. I can do it is to be an English teacher, so I'm going yeah. to be an English teacher. Yeah. It's exactly what I did. 
Except yeah, I it's what I did to too. actually love what I was doing, and you know, I fell into like, oh, I'm really, I like this a mm. lot. This is great. Yeah, um, I, I was also lucky in that I was able to function on two or three hours sleep when I was that age a lot of the time. So you know, yeah. it's like <laughs> you kind of yeah, exactly grab that. three hours kit, brush your teeth, go in and teach, and, and you kind of get the energy from the classroom. But um, exactly, but yeah, there are people who aren't, and again, that's yeah. very rarely going to be someone who's an L two speaker of English yeah. who's studied, gone to university, spent yeah. years training to be a teacher, and then they've they've gone into the job in that respect. So. Again, another another reason um, to, I, for I, equality. I, a quick story on this front. Years ago, I used to work um, with this guy uh, in, in Indonesia who was one of those native speakers, and I used to share a class next door to him on, on in the mornings. And one day I heard him stumble into class late, um, and I heard him kind of knock something over as he walked in, and then I heard this awful retching, vomiting sound. Oh, no. and I sort of thought I better just pop in and see what's going on, and I walked in, and he was holding up the kind of rubbish basket like this and wiping his chin, and he turned to this class of teenage Indonesians and said, "The verb you are looking for is to vomit. I shall write it on the board." Oh, there my you go. Gosh. I, I've only twice vomited at work, <laughs> never in the classroom. One of them, I was genuinely very ill, and the other one was the day after my stag do, uh, where I had to run out and, and use the bathroom. But um, I went into work the day after my stag do, which was maybe the biggest error that I made. Um, I should probably <laughs> taken that day off in advance. Um, so on that note... Um, it's been wonderful. Um, it's been lovely. I, I guess I'll see you in Belfast. Um, I hope so, Harry. Yeah, yeah. Come I'm arriving on, Come the, on the Wednesday. So um, okay, I'm there for the duration. So fantastic. I have a I have a wedding ceremony to attend. Um, yeah, it's not mine, as you know, because I just told you that. I've, you know, but yeah, I have a wedding ceremony to attend on the Tuesday. So I'll be leaving on Wednesday. Um, okay. Hopefully, well, it won't be. Come say hello, and um, well, I will catch you there. Are you yeah, will indeed. Thank you thank very you much so for inviting me on. An absolute pleasure. Um, it's been lovely. So thank you so much. All righty. Now then, um, thank you everybody for joining us. We'll be back next week. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for being here, Vanessa. Wonderful as always. And we'll speak to you soon. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.